reach it up, my selector. Ta, ta, ta. Shot like this could I never miss. Hello and welcome to Raw with me, Tom Latcham. Well, we've been asked by a lot of you guys out there to interview some promoters, and it was always an aim. Plus, I've wanted to explore for a while the differences between raves and rave music in different parts of the UK. So I've decided to combine the two with today's guests. Paul O is a DJ and producer, but he is also primarily known as the promoter of uh, Yorkshire-based Uprising, which has been going for 25 years now. So let's uh, talk to him about all about it, how he started it, uh, his highs, his lows, and uh, what the future is for raving, of course, when no one at the moment can go rave. Hey, Paul, how you doing? I'm good, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Thank you very much. I've um, uh, just done an intro saying that you are... A DJ and a producer, but primarily known really for being the promoter of uh, Yorkshire-based Uprising. It's been going 25 years now. It, it was going to be, wasn't it? Your 25th anniversary this year. Yeah. Or, or, yeah it's it's a bit of a pain. Going, <laughs> See, it is, you know, I mean, what can we do? I mean, just got to sit it out. We'll have the 25th birthday next year and the 26th at the same time. Get double messy. <laughs> Good man. Um, so, so tell us, um, how did you? Uh, why did you decide to start Uprising back in early 1995? Right. Okay. I'll try and give you the short version. Um, it, it came about as a, a kind of, I guess, a bit of an evolution. So, got into DJing in '88. A mate got me into it. Acid House is kicking off, loved it. We're going with band music from like specialist record shops. Aspirations of doing that, but you know, you're a 19 year old in the pit village kid, you know, get real. So, so I started doing weddings and engagements and 18th birthday parties and bar mitzvahs and just all that kind of shit. A few local pubs as well, which were uh, earthy. <laughs> um, and, and slowly, slowly kind of did more towny stuff. Got some gigs in Chesterfield and places, so playing a little bit more up front stuff, still buying the music. And then I went out to, um, I kind of got into the scene a little bit late, to be fair. I was more into the hard house side and the piano early hardcore stuff wasn't for me. Um, and then I, we started going BYO, Warehouse, um, Doncaster. And just hearing the how the music had evolved as kind of like the, the sort of Gabba stroke kind of European influences. You know, people like Loftgroover, Lenny D, Easy Groove, M-Zone doing his scene, like Easy D and Rush, all these guys and this real amalgam of different sounds. And it's like, fuck me, screw that house. I want to play this hardcore shit. I'm, I'm in. Um, so it, we, we kind of went down that route and tried to put on a couple of nights. We did one called Watch Your Poison in um, January 94. Didn't really get anywhere. And I convinced the guy who I was in the pub spot on a Thursday and Friday in Chesterfield to let me do Thursdays a hardcore night. And they had one going called Monty's as well. So Brisky had come down sometimes. I'm like, oh, Brisky, you know. Like, <laughs> and um, anyway, long story short, the, the club that we'd be doing the odd Mondays at, the Revolution, uh, they'd messed around with like cheap beer nights and all that kind of shit. And the owner, I got quite friendly with him. He was a little bit reticent at first. Became my partner, Kenny, uh, when we did Uprising together. And he said, oh, you've got Thursday nights going if you fancy it. And we're like... Oh, should we do this? You know, we're getting 50 quid a night here between us, and we're a little thing here with petrol money out. We're getting fuck all money basically. And I thought, you know what? Go for it. So we just thought, we'll give it a pun. We were getting 150, couple hundred people when we did a little one off things. So I stumped up two grand on my credit card to uh, pay for a load of flyers and do this and that, thinking, ah, oh, 
Fucking hell, this turns out all right. Uh, 12th of January, 95, three and a half hundred people rocked up. It was like, hallelujah. On a Thursday night in Rotherham. Well, what else is there to do on a Thursday night in Rotherham, Paul? Well, what else is there to do in Rotherham? <laughs> <laughs> Don't get taxed. <laughs> but yeah, we're quite blessed because in the area, you've got, I mean, Gary with Vibalite running his thing down Mansfield, brilliant event. You've got uh, Donny Warehouse every Saturday, like iconic place. Um, you've got Stu Destruction doing his thing up in Howden. So there's quite a little buzz in the area. And I think because of the nature of the scene, and it, it really kind of suited us working class world. So we, there was just a real cult following there. So maybe I, we just got lucky right place, right time. Yeah? And, and what did you hope to achieve? Did you have any grand plans for it? I mean, I, I'm assuming you probably didn't think you'd be here 25 years later. Absolutely not. Did not have a scooby doo Just thought, I'm going to get to play some music, like get some chicks, and it'd be really cool and get yeah, mash up at the weekend. Um, and it just it, it absolutely surpassed expectations, even on the first night. And then the momentum that was gathered as was a result of talking to other people, you know, people like Gary, Mick Hemsworth, big influence helped me get started, uh, and others. So um, yeah, just just had no expectation. Just just had a dream. And so what what is the secret in your mind of putting on a such a successful and run, long running running sorry to get me teeth in long running event there's a question um i think it's you i think you've got to be close to your crowd and i think you've got to build that cult following people talk about it and and say that and i i think you've also and this is where the likes of warehouse and, and, and destruction at the time work, work did well was because the promoters and in, in our case resident DJs as well we were genuinely into the music we loved it we were going out and living it we were proper music geeks uh, and we we're party heads as well so I think those factors came together because we go to nights we knew what made good nights bad nights we knew the DJs the MCs that were doing it so I think that baked into that DNA and that real love for the music was, was was probably key. Well, in terms of the music, um, I, I said in my intro that I'd wanted to explore for a while the the the, the differing types of of rave and rave music around the country because they are very different. And I've always I've always found it like a, a amusing that Brisk lived in Southampton, but in Southampton it was it was you know it, it's in the south it was all breakbeats and up and up north. So he ended up becoming um you know sort of a, a resident um yeah. at kinetic yeah. and he had to drive every bloody week to to play the music that he really liked because it was so hard and it was only liked in the north. So in terms of uh, music and the mindsets in your mind what are the differences between the North and the Midlands and the South? I think you've, you've, you've kind of covered it. Um, and certainly when we were starting out, there was quite a, a distinct difference. I mean, that doesn't mean that people went into happy hour in the North because they were. Uh, you got like that Pleasure Den, for example, who did pretty well with it. Um, but yeah, predominantly, you could see a real kind of evolution in style. Um, and I think the further you got North, there was... Yeah, like I said, Scott Brown and those guys up there, and Mark Smith and people, and 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 obviously uh, G and, and Smurf and folks at Judgment Day. See, so I don't know what it was. It seems to get harder the further you got up north. Why is that? Um, do you think? Because we're rough artists. I don't know. We just like <laughs> clacking noises. I've probably sat bored about it too much. Um, and it, it is a weird one because you know you go across to Europe and you got obviously quite dark and 
you know, monotonous kind of repetitive beaty sounds with the sort of the, the German and, and uh, some of the German sounds and, 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 and Belgium by comparison, uh, or to some. And then you go up to Holland and you've got like the, the Gabba sound. And yet, despite some of those, I guess, places being kind of close to the South Coast, it was weird that it was only the North that seemed to embrace it. And and how has that shaped? Um, how has that shaped your events? You say you, you you're very close. It's important that you're close to to your crowd. Well, your crowd obviously likes that sort of music. Uh, so therefore, how has it shaped who you've booked? Uh, your, your music policy, all that sort of thing. Yeah, I, quite quite massively. Um, because we got a real mix of music and there was still like jungle being played for example at destruction but obviously i mentioned earlier easy being russia were like very very well known yorkshire and nationally for that matter um <clears throat> so is that looking for that diversity um was kind of key even though it was a harder edge it was kind of more the the, the techno gamma stroke trance influence was predominant for us um but yeah, we we that that was pretty important. We we kind of took the view that we just we wanted to be it's where you go and just just stomp out your your worries and your troubles and you kind of you know pull some screw faces and then away you go. So I guess it was the our leaning towards that that, that made that um, more that booking that kind of style than that. And, and, and would you if you booked a sort of slightly happier DJ, would you be telling them? You're gonna no, no, you're no, gonna have to up your beats uh, tonight because you know that's that's the crowd here. Or they just knew. Uh, I think they kind of knew, but you know, we. I was always interested when booking, and and we 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 brought some some artists to the area, uh, including one Mark E G who was kind of dabbling about. And I'm not going to do Mark any service here, but brought him on in Rotherham on one of these Thursday nights. And for half the music, the crowd just stood looking like, what the fuck's this? And the other half not. So we took some chances, you feel like, artistically. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a tricky one to answer. I, I just think you just got a sense that if somebody was really into what they were doing or doing something a bit different or a bit unusual, a bit like when as a DJ, you'll, you'll if, you, if you're any good, you'll, you'll try and drop in some tracks to kind of tease the crowd and see if they go for it, to just try and mix it up with rather just anthem bash. And I think that same mentality we applied with the booking as well. Do you think that, um, so say the bigger raves, um, like Helter Skelter and Dreamscape and those sort of things, you'd get DJs playing slightly safer than they would if they came to you because they perhaps you've got, a, I don't know, it, maybe did you have a slightly more devoted and therefore perhaps into the music and intelligent crowd? Uh, <laughs> I don't say maybe no. Oh, be careful here because they are your punters. <laughs> I think I think yeah they were into the music no question um and I think perhaps I can't speak for the other promoters but I get a sense that maybe they did play a little bit safe but you know when you're putting on productions like that it's a risk and we made the conscious decision to, to primarily stay a club night and, and not try and go too big and, and and I remember dad saying to me why are you doing this why are you copying what gay crashes in like not really what I want to do. Uh, and so because of that, because we were different genres in one room as well, I think we kind of, we developed that um, that broad-mindedness amongst the crowd. So you got people into trance, into in, across the board. 
Um, would would and, and would, would going to a bigger event, uh, becoming a bigger event, like uh, you know, you get crash or or whatever you want to want to say, would that have required you to have perhaps gone a bit more mainstream and and sort of I don't know, sold out? Quite possibly, and and that was that was always a, a at the back of the mind. And then when I Kenny and I stepped out of Uprising and, and kind of passed on, and, and Brian ran with it, sort of two thousand and two on. It was a bit like letting your kids go with the babysitter or the, or the, or the nanny or whatever, and always felt that because Bri was, was trying to, to adapt to the times and, and, and maybe play a little safer, there was always that. I was always a bit, uh, there's a bit of animosity, should we say, uh, for, a, for a while anyway, uh, because of that, that very sentiment. Um, but it's a tough one, you know, because you know, you're risking your money, you, 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 especially if it's a full-time job as it was. On the one hand, it, it's kind of easy to be critical, but at the same time, you've got to think, it's a juggling act, but I think some people just just play too safe, and when they could, maybe experiment a little bit. And I mean, after all, you know, if, if everybody's off their heads, then you know you can you can probably push the boundary a little bit there, and it's not like they're just going to all walk out of the building, right? We hope you're enjoying Raw so far. Now's here where we ask for your assistance. We're a small team of normal people with normal jobs, and if you could spare us just a few quid, it'll go such a long way to helping us continue making more 90s rave-related content for you lovely lot. To do so, you just have to head to gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. That URL again, gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. Anything at all you can give uh, will help out, and you might even be able to uh, get your hands on some Artwork designed exclusively for us by Grantus Arts, and you might even get a shout on future episodes. That URL for one final time gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. You know what to do. Well, I don't think we should judge any promoter. I, I, th- I can't, um, I'm trying to think who it was we uh, I spoke to recently. I, I, no, I was listening to an interview with Doc Scott, and he said that he's put on a few events himself very recently, but for a long time he resisted because he would always see the promoters at the end of the night, regardless of whether it had been a good night or a bad night, and the look on their face was just one of just stress and panic. Um, <laughs> is, is it the hardest job in, in Rafe? Uh I, I think it is now. And, you know, I've got a lot of sympathy. Well, yeah, for getting COVID, pre-COVID, sympathy for people trying to do that because of all the, the challenge we talked uh, before we go to the interview. Um, but I, I think the bigger you get with more going on, then yes, it becomes more stressful because you're trying to coordinate more things. Whereas when we were really in a heyday or the first, the first heyday, as it were, um, middle late nineties. Yeah, we got sound engineer take that, light engineer taking care of that, the doorstep took care of it all, the club was the clubs. We just turned up, had somebody on the till, um, and just made sure the DJs showed up and we could, you know, after we played our set, maybe cut loose a little bit. So we weren't too stressed as promoters back then. Uh, but I think that'd be rather different, you know, if you've got much more to coordinate. Uh, and what was your best period as a promoter of Uprising and why? I would sound like a dinosaur and say it was the 95 to kind of 98 era. Um, I mean, this is the 90s rave podcast, so I mean, that's absolutely fine. Uh, it's, it's banging our demographic, really. Cool, okay. I make apologies to the viewers then. <laughs> Why? <laughs> um, I generally think that although there was an element of DJ culture, there was a lot of people making music who wanted to make music, and there were still people buying records. I mean, 
we went out to um, one of these history events we had at Magna where they brought like some of the old house DJs and stuff, and other guy, guy was organising it. And we were like wife's friends and stuff like that. And, and kind of one of, the, one of the guys probably was saying, oh, yeah, all the 12s, I've still got all these 12s at home. This is just a regular guy, a regular punter, just went out raving, went out partying. And, but he bought the 12 inches, he bought the vinyls. So that whole record shop culture wasn't just DJs or back scratching and, and, and kissing arse or whatever else and, and fluffing each other up about how great the promo is. It was genuine punters going in there and buying the music as well. And I think that was quite important. And, when, and, and, and in what way did that change? Digital. Um, right. I mean, there's all this back into about, oh, it's a dinosaur format and all the rest of it. But I, I genuinely believe, and there's a book out as well, I've got upstairs full of the title, um, how the music industry got killed or something. And it was the coming together of kind of music on the internet being available and file sharing, um, MP3 format, people going CD. So y- you've not got something physical you can kind of go, yeah, this this is it, and there's a sleeve note and all your skin up on it or whatever else. You know, it's there was something you physically had, and, and that's why Discogs is going batshit crazy because everybody's wanting this vinyl again because it's collectible, whereas a load of files on an SSD drive, who cares? Yeah, I think as well, uh, Lunacy said it when we interviewed him, it, it, it's sort of like the Netflixification of society. If you've got so much at your fingerprint uh, fingertips... You've actually got nothing. And so I don't have, for example, now um, uh, linear TV, right? I got rid of I got rid of normal television, so to speak. And, you know, I've got everything. I've got Netflix. I've got iPlayer. I've got all that stuff. But I actually don't watch very much TV anymore because sometimes you need to be guided in the direction and told what you should be listening to. Yeah, exactly. That is like, it's like the, I used to say, it's like the chicken nuggets thing where people say, oh, like the kids learn to eat chicken nuggets. It's like, because you're not trying to, Kind of coerce them with something else and, and broadening the, the the palette. Of course, always asking fucking chicken nuggets. The same with like, I just want the same template pattern hardcore shape that's around now because that's all they're being fed. They don't know any better. Um, so I absolutely agree with that. And I was saying to the daughter that the um, talking about albums, they're always skipping through albums. So I know it's going to sound like you know, okay, boomer, but you put the album on or CD and you put it on. And you listen to it, and then there'll be a couple of tracks in there that you didn't like at first, and then become growers, and be like, all of a sudden you, you learn to appreciate that, and you kind of get into it, and you, you, you kind of see it different. Whereas now they'll just go skip, skip, skip. As you say, the Netflixization of, of, of media. Um, and so that was definitely. so that was the best period for you was the '95 to '98. What about the worst, and why? Um, I think back end of the '90s because the kind of that. Happy hardcore, um, and I, I'm not picking on happy hardcore by the way, don't, don't I'm not being an arse, but it, it seemed to become predominant. And because that was popular, I remember like the, the, the disties and stuff, it was more you, if you were doing that, they were interested, they can do something a little bit off the wall, they weren't. Um, and the overuse that kind of 4 4 kick drum on the happy stuff, and it just became almost very templated. And people, I could visibly see. The numbers diminishing and uprising, and there are other things that happen, which we'll come on to as well um, a little later on, if you like. But it, it absolutely tanked um, into the 90s. And the funny thing was, there was a meeting amongst all promoters and luminaries of the industry. I can remember we drove down to, I think it was Northampton or something, and you know, there was ourselves, me and Kenny, there was um, and, and one of the other residents, Glover, there was Stu from Destruction, Adam Gary was there. Bunter was there, a whole, whole bunch of kind of different folk, like, what can we do to kind of fix this? Because you know, everybody can see visibly things are starting to 
the bottom line, you need to mix it up, guys. And, you know, we got props for what we're doing here. Thanks, everybody. That's great. But we're one event. There has to be a joint effort and none of this clickiness. And I think that kind of, um, not monocular swing I'm looking for, that, that, that little kind of click, as it were, and just giving each other dubs and stuff, it was actually strangling, I think, that that creativity. It was actually, it was like it, they were choking themselves to death. And I actually choked and said then, you know, if you don't sort it out, guys, I'll see you on the golf queue in a few years. And okay, not everybody has been, but somebody actually referred to that comment only the other week online. Oh, really? Um, well, yeah. when was this? When was this meeting? Because we interviewed Force and Styles recently, and they told us that there was a meeting at uh, Slam and Vinyl HQ in Enfield, where it was more of a DJ meeting with uh, you know your, your usual sus- you, your obvious suspects. Whoever was on that lineup in 1999, you know, you know all the DJs. They named Brisk and uh, I think Sai and people like that were there. Um, and 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 I assume this is a different meeting. Uh, but what they said was. Uh, the, the sort of general acceptance or rather grant from slamming was like, guys, you're going too fast. You've got to slow it down. And so they all agreed to go away and make some stuff that was slower and only force and styles did it. So, um, it, it, you know, it all just carried on and then it died a death. Is this a different meeting? Different meeting. Yeah, this was down. I'm, I'm, I'm certain it was Northampton way. Um, and I'll even remember the hotel because I've been past a few times for the day job nowadays. But um, yeah, it was definitely Northampton. This hotel met up there. The, the girl who ran Hard Dock at the time was down as well. A whole bunch of us anyway came down for this this kind of hoo ha. And you know, even then it was called out that you know yeah, you can't just keep going down this formulaic route. And and, and of course the, you know, the rest is history. It absolutely tanked. <clears throat> and and did it tank? Did it, did it tank for you? Well, we'd stopped doing Uprising anyway. There was kind of difference of opinion, as it were, because I wasn't doing it full-time and Kenny Clark was, and there was some, some background stuff there. And, and, and drew it to the close, because I just remember being a bit prima donna, but said, yeah, I, I'm not prepared to watch the band go under. It's, you know, it's, it can't go on like this, the way it's going. Drew a line under it. And then I went through a split with the, el- uh, the eldest mum, and kind of like, all of a sudden, I've got lots of free time in my evenings again. What am I going to do? Um, and, I, and people have been at me, oh, do something, do something. I thought, well, I'm not doing Uprising. So we started that called Revolution and, and consciously went down the slightly tougher stuff, still a bit of happy in there, but uh, really got on board with the new energy stuff that Sharky and Kev Energy were doing and people like that. We did a chemical generation, PA. People loved it. You know, so we were blending a little bit of hard house in there as well, you know, uh, marrow kind of stuff. Not to try and turn into a house art, but just to try and mix it up because there wasn't, in the UK scene, there was limited producers doing stuff. Scott was still putting stuff out, Scott Brown, and risking to be fair. But to to us and our crowd, and, and we just, I just thought that the, the normal hardcore that was out there was just wasn't in, in keeping with, with what we wanted to do. Um, so we had a little little burst and little bubble again, um, and, and kind of actually you know, four or five hundred people, um, pretty much a month. So we were doing all right there. Um, but yeah, 98, 99, it was really, it kind of, it dropped, I think. I'm sure other people say the same. And uh, yeah. it's, it's like with Jungle Techno. I love Jungle Techno. And it was like two mm. years and then it just went away again. And you're like, 
this stuff's actually intelligent. This stuff's really good. It's good music. It's clever, smart music. Why is it dying a death? Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I don't know the answer is the, is the honest truth. Although I'm hoping to get Ron Wells on at some point to talk to me about Jungle Techno wow. and why, why. Well, I think he just stopped making it and he was the only one that was making good stuff. So I think that's probably the answer there. But I don't want to preempt him before the interview. But I think that might have been it. Hit you top, my selector. Ta, ta, ta. Shot like this could have never missed. Well, that's back to what I said earlier. If you've not got people producing because they want to do good stuff, you, you, you've got you've got no scene. Because fast forward to today, and if the the only way to be a DJ is to get recognised for tracks. Therefore, I'm going to make a track so I get DJ gigs. Are you really putting that love and passion and that creativity into that track? When I have people say, "I'm going to the studio today to make a track," I don't know it's going to be any good. You know, you, you, don't, you don't just like make it happen. Oh. Sometimes it can, and sometimes it can come quick, but other times it's like you might have ideas kicking around, you took them away on Cubase or whatever, and then come back to me in three months and have this spark of inspiration, and boom, and you've written a masterpiece. Um, but uh, I, I, I like Max, you said that intelligent, not that I want to use that word too much, but good quality music, it's got some, some longevity to it that you know isn't just going to be that like sugar rush that people eventually get yeah. bored of, which yeah, what I, think, happens. I think that's probably what I, I did have a mobile call. And, and if, if you could pick one rave that you've put on over the years that was the, the very best, it stands out as your pinnacle, what would it be and why? Um, I think it was probably the we did an all nighter in August 96. Uh, no, we can't be, it must be 90, no, August 96. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. Um, and we, we called it uh, 909, done the first online. It was absolutely hammered. And we had some of the reason, like 1,100 people in the Adelphi. Um, and it was packed. I mean, with the marquee and stuff, it was absolutely packed. And, you know, a whole mix of different people on the lineup. Um, and it was just like, wow, we can do this. You know, we just, I think it's back on this something, just like, wow, we, we, we've kind of made What's it. What's that buzz like? Uh, it's, it's weird. Um, there is a real energy about like a load of people in the club just going fucking nuts for tunes and you're like, whether you're playing it yourself as I was playing stuff like this, the death chances, whatever, or your M-Zone dropping some like fresh trance or Kenny dropping his really kind of the deeper sort of house of trance stuff. Or, you know, just, just watching that crowd going nuts and watching that jock work in that crowd and, and just the whole place was electric. You know, the entire place. None of this kind of people on phones or just nodding or whatever else. They went in and they went into stomp. Yeah, and, and just you, you, you can't describe that. And it's quite funny when it's like guys who were for me in our early 20s and they kind of like going out and one or two got onto what I was doing. Uh, in fact, I saw Chris Unknown actually within the day job. That's another story. Uh, and they're like, they're laughing about the old Ray videos. I said, yeah, number one, you know, we didn't care about camera and platinum guys, but yeah, number two, we went and we parted. We just, we, it, it was, that was what we did. We didn't worry about Insta pictures or anything like that. And I think, do you think that'll ever come back? Because, uh, I mean, social media appears that it might well be here to stay now. And that is a big problem. Camera phones are certainly not going anywhere, are they? But do you think that, that, that those days will be lost or, or, or rather very, very much, much more rare, I suppose? Uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I always live in hope, and, and this is one of the reasons I've, I've kind of hung around a bit like a bad smelling, that there's going to be another youth kind of music culture movement. You know, I'd say the last big one was the rave scene, or maybe, I don't know, the grime scene, you could say, as, as more recently. 
But there hasn't really, I've not really seen that, that kind of movement. And I think, although there might be, social media cameras, I think, will still get in the way because I don't think young people nowadays are as necessarily predisposed to just going out and getting wrecked. Um, but I don't know because I'm not one. Boring bastards. <laughs> Uh, and uh, which um, have you had any raves that just bombed? Yeah, I mean, we did um, we did a Halloween uprising three or four years ago. Um, brought me a fight across. I think the club didn't help, and, and that were our tanks. Um, we did uh, old school revival night called um, Recycle a few years ago, and we struggled with that one. A couple of three hundred people in. You know, you don't always have it your own way, and I think. For a while, when even when I did Revolution and some others, we kind of you get into that almost not quite arrogance, but you just think, oh, it's just going to be like when we've done an uprising, and then you know, actually, only three hundred come through the door, and you're going to go and grab some more cash, and like ah, and that 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 knocks that um, that that overconfidence a little bit, and you realise that you know, you just got to work for this and, and earn those punters because it's a different set of punters that's coming through now, and you've got to make sure you're, you're tapping into those guys like you were the original one. How have you changed so, your, if you have, the approach to your raves now that there are a different generation of ravers coming through the door? That's, that's a good question. So Bright Top Roof took over in 2002. As I say, I kind of quite a difference of viewpoint in terms of kind of musical direction. And we kind of came back together in 2013, kind of been at me a few times. He just said, I want it to be like it was again. I think he he come to realise that yes, you know, we've done some collabs with with uh, Kieran Keys, and you know, they, that guy puts on some big events. And he's gone off to do bigger and better things. Uh, and although I don't agree with the musical direction of what he does, I got to look at the guy and say, yeah, fair play. Um, but I think for us, it was almost kind of getting back to base. How, how can we maintain the spirit of the original events and what made it special, but try and evolve musically? So what we tried to do then is. Inspires the old school, yeah, you know, to some criticism from some of the new promoters who are trying to get along, but then bringing a couple of names or bringing people we know are still doing new music and mixing it up a little bit just to try and keep a foot in either camp. Um, but, it, but it's tough; it's, it's it's a lot tougher now. Why is it? Why is it tougher now? For what reasons? I think um, because you'll get our era of ravers, you know, the, the 90s ravers, as it were, kind of coming along and they'll only come once a while because we've all got grown-up stuff to do, right? You know, we've all got mortgages and kids and responsibilities and, you know, we don't want to get mashed up on a Saturday night because we'll be hanging out of our asses on a Monday and like... And the rest. And the Tuesday and the Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, 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 so you're not as likely to do that. And um, I, I think also... A lot of people say they're going to come, and, and, and this is the other thing I've with the whole Facebook promo at the minute. It's like 10,000 likes don't mean a shit, mate. You know, we got the last one we put out there, we got 42,000 views uh, of our announcement of the event in 24 hours. That's no organic, no paid, right. no nothing. Just people going batshit crazy. You're looking at it up. We're looking at stats just thinking, wow, wow, wow. But I knew that that ain't going to equate to like, even a tenth, you know, ten percent of that coming through the door. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm real. That's probably going to mean we'll get eight hundred thousand people maybe coming along. Um, so, to, to the question of like, it's tough. It's, it's, it's hard to try and get that balance because the old lot won't necessarily come out even though he likes and says they're coming all that bollocks. And then 
are we doing enough to, to entice the younger crowd in? Are they still going to listen to the music that they used to listen to, brothers, sisters, mums, dads, whatever? Are they going to want to hear something newer? Are they going to think, you know, we're a little bit like ancient, a bit irrelevant? And, and, and that's the juggling act. Have you ever come close to, <clears throat> to going out of business, to going bankrupt? Well, it, it got a little bit grim, and that was the reason for kind of drawing a line under it with, um, in, in sort of 98, because when I kind of stepped out while doing full-time, and I think <clears throat> Kenny was finding it challenging. Um, and obviously, if you're still operating on the cost and the model that you were when you haven't quite got the money coming through the door, then you either start cutting corners, and I could see that things were going to get a little bit pear-shaped, so I, I kind of draw a stop. But, but no, we didn't. Um, and then after the revolution thing, we decided to start to uprise again. So we all put the band back together. But we, Kenny and I got family commitments. So Brian took it on. So he took it on through the real tough years of 2002 to 2004, five as the Raider Baby kind of boom started. Uh, and, you know, and he had to work hard for that to his credit. So I don't think quite bankrupt, but he, he certainly had to earn his money, that's for sure. And what's been your lowest point as a, uh, as a promoter? Yeah, watching somebody die. Uh, pretty uh, sorry to love the tone, guys, but um, you know, shit's happened. But I'm sure we've all lost mates, people along the way. Um, this girl actually used to come. I actually trained because when I was a tech guy before the DJing took off, uh, she was one of the students on the IT training that I did. So I knew all of her friends and everything else. Took a bad turn in the club. Thought she was coming okay. She wanted to go back home and stuff. So went back to see if she was okay. Went back to the club, wrapped up the night, thought we'll go back and check and make sure she's still okay. Went back and she just, she'd obviously, body had shut down. By the sounds of things, she took way too much speed and stuff. And she, she, was, she was probably dead by the time she was in the body in the first place. But trying to like resuscitate and literally watching somebody die is pretty grim, man. So that was probably the lowest point. And that for me was, I've had enough of this shit. I'm, I'm out of this. Um, and took a few months to kind of get my head back into, you know, you still love music, so did it, separate the two. Did it live with you, that? I mean, the, uh, look, oh, no, yeah. ultimately, yeah. ultimately, you know, we go, to, we go to raves and people take drugs. That happens. And unfortunately, when people do change the chemicals in their body, they are, are sometimes prone to, to this sort of thing happening. So it's, not, it's, not, it's clearly not your fault. But it was at your event. Yeah. It was at your event. Does, that, does, it, does it live with you? Um, it, it did for a while, and then let's just say somebody I know who was in the distribution industry <laughs> said to me, "said Did you sell them to her?" Well, of course not. He said, "Well, so what's your problem?" He said, "Even if I'd have sold somebody some, I, I wouldn't feel bad about it." I said, "I can't be held responsible for what somebody chooses to do with their body and what they choose to do that." He says, "You need to get your head around that," and it was quite a blunt thing to say at the time, but I kind of thought about that, uh, and and so and afterwards, you know, you still think about it, but you know, it's I've, I've reconciled it, I guess. Uh, and to on more positive note, I'm interested to know which artists that you book uh, just always go down a storm. Oh God, cracky! Um, Mark E.G. I think because because obviously we discovered him not be doing a guy service, but because we kind of brought him along and introduced him to Mickey Enzo, and then he got introduced to the warehouse and stuff like that, so become a firm favourite kind of locally, and, and obviously he's gone nationally to do fantastic things. Another music geek, and he's just. I mean, he's still smashing records with his and doing daft shit like that. But, you know, the guy loves his music. You can't fail to not like what he's doing. Um, Brisky, uh, I've got a lot of time for him. I mean, he was a hero, so he's a little bit like kind of like 
fandom when, when it's first booking and stuff and we, we sort of stay mates now he comes and sees us when he comes over here and so on um, Scott Brown was always you know, great value Scott just top top drawer and he's, he's, he's good um, Cy was always good for us you know we've had him just recently as well I mean again absolutely top draw um, but I mean there's loads really oh fucking hell Lomas Lomas was brilliant I mean he's dropped off the face of the earth and we <laughs> here's one listeners asked Lomas about the time he come and uh, had beers with us at uh, Uprising and then found out that there wasn't just beer in the beers and it was like a scene out of Twin Towns watching try and get his car out of the car and we're just like we fucked him up <laughs> uh, Clarky another good one um, I produce I mean I could go on but yeah in terms of always delivering uh, Brisky definitely Scott Brown uh, Cy Mark EG, Emzone as well, local hero, always delivers. Does it help it, that they're good guys as well? Like, who, who are the best ones? To, like, who, who are the, the dream to deal with? Yeah, all, the, all those guys, they're, just, they're normal, they're down to earth, you can deal with them. Uh, you know, even to this day, you know, when the, the fees are on the stratospheric, they're kind of the, 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 the fair and all the rest of it. And yeah, just dead, dead nice guys. So yeah, that's probably part of it, to be fair. And who, which artists are just. Just didn't, oh, just oh, didn't do oh, it. Fell oh, flat. Oh dear me! Um, I'm trying to think. Of what we, I, what, I booked Paul Elstack once, and I thought he was, he was just arrogant twat. And uh, I've heard that. Booking, I, you're not the first person I've heard. I've heard that. I, I, I just, you know, like you, it's kind of not quite here. But, oh yeah, it's really cool. And then booked him, just thought, cunt. So <laughs> that, that one out. <laughs> um, not a massive fan of some of the, the happier guys, just because it just always felt a little bit false. And, you know, you have, let's just say somebody who then begins with D, you would, you book them and they just wouldn't turn up. And the rumour was I, that I, they for, would... For anyone they, listening on podcast, my face is is a thinking face. I'm trying to think who begins with a D. Uh, maybe towards the Northampton direction. And uh, right, that, okay. he didn't turn up for the event, and he's just like, why the fuck's that? And obviously, they must have booked a load of gigs, allegedly. That's what the assertion was. And just thought, ah, fuck, it can't be asked to drive with Sheffield. I'll make my money tonight. And just like, nah, yeah, that's that's not the way we're old. No, it's, disrespect, uh, it's disrespectful, isn't it? I, it's disrespectful to you as a promoter, but it's also disrespectful to people who've paid the ticket money to go and see Absolutely someone. right. Yeah, I'm, I'm always big on that. Yeah, we're charging people and saying we're putting something on. We damn well would have given them what they paid for, so I have a real issue with that. Um, and then, <laughs> and then the other one, who famous prima donna, who got spanked and put on his ass on stage in front of eight hundred punters, was uh, a certain MC Storm. Oh, did he? Was it the biggest? Uh, was it the biggest cheer you've ever had? That one. Oh, mate, I tell you. It's tell us this. Come on, tell us this story, Paul. Come on, you can't now not tell us this story. <laughs> so, and, and there's a certain poetic justice there that came before rather than afterwards. But obviously, Storm used to be putting up the sign. And I think you could fairly safe to say, I didn't have to sign around his coattails. It wouldn't be where he was. Uh, there I said it. And he'd come along and he'd obviously come. And, and we wouldn't normally book other people's MCs. And I know there's a lot of... Uh, negativity around RMC so we don't shut up. Yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I, I didn't say anything, although, by the way, I have sent you my questions and this is the next question, but carry on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that. So, so <laughs> he um, he comes and he like, so, but MC just rolling, okay, yeah, fair enough, you're not, but all right, we'll give you like chat a little bit. And 
And my kid brother actually dabbles at MC and you know, not not one of the big names like the, the guys, but just you know, steady away. Tap Stone, like, yeah, come on, pass my back. Some like, you know, gives it one of them. And like, yeah. and then JD Walker went up to him and he like and gives it one of them. So JD's a pricey bastard. And and my kid brothers, you wouldn't think it to look at him, but you wouldn't want to tangle with him. And long story short, he gave it one and Storm come back, started getting lifted. Bam! Spanked him straight on his arse. Went crashing down behind me. I looked around and I just looked at him. And he had this look in his face like, like he was going to get up. And I just thought, please don't get up. Please don't get up. He'll <laughs> just he'll kill you. And then he just sort of scowled and slid off and crawled out the stage door. Oh, really? It's a top selector. Shot like this could I never miss. What I find uh, interesting about the, the the hardcore scene and and even a, even the jungle and drum and bass scene, although it is much bigger now, um, and they are genuinely bona fide international stars. Some of these guys, you're like yeah, yeah, yeah. you're like you, you're not David Guetta, guys. Like I mean, you are performing. Have you? So you know, some sometimes she, uh, there was one DJ I won't name him, and I went up to him and I was like, I'm I, I'm thinking about naming my dog after you when I get a dog because you've got a great name, and he was like. It, honestly, he couldn't look. He couldn't look less impressed. And I was like, "Have you seen who you're playing to here? I've just told you I'm going to name my dog after you, and you're playing to 200 toothless simpletons in this fucking club. Like, and, come on, mate. This should, you should be saying you'll marry my daughter. Like, not, 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 anyway, whatever. Like, but you, you just think, come on, man. This is meant to be fun. It's just a laugh. We all like this stuff. We're not. It's not super serious. It's not big. It's not a big deal, is it? It's just lots of people meant to be having fun and enjoying themselves. And people often do take themselves too seriously. But, but that's artists, right, Paul? Yeah, but I, I suppose that's maybe why we're not being that successful because we've not took ourselves too seriously. But then equally, that's probably why we've had more longevity because, yeah, I'm going for pissing up rising. I'll be stood there just a sneaking crap, mind my own business. Kick, oh, yeah, Paul, oh, we can make yeah, What's this tune? And I'm like, just let's have a piss, mate. Just a minute, you know. But yeah, that's, 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 that's all that's the fun of the fair, right? Maybe you haven't got, that. maybe, maybe the reason you haven't got successful is because of all of the MCs that you uh, employ that don't stop talking, Paul. Uh, we got to oh, it oh, eventually. Come on, man. Come on, man. <laughs> well, look, you know, the northern MCs, we know they all get a lot of flack from people from outside of Yorkshire, really. Uh, for their style, but why do you think it is that they're so popular for you guys, and they do so well for you? They are incredibly popular among your punters, but just nowhere else. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a mad thing. I think so. When I first was starting going out and buying tapes, and um, I wasn't massively into the MCs, and of course, it went Bible Light. Obviously, went Johnny Warehouse, went Bible Light as well, and much more kind of underplayed a little bit. But it was a style that is predominantly three MCs, and that's Marcus J.D. Walker. And they just, I mean, they're all into music. That's the mad thing. You think, like, okay, they're not into music, it's trash. I mean, Nats is a massive music head, like, cross genres. But they all obviously come from that kind of Jamaican sound system kind of background and chatting the lyrics. And I think because that was quite um, unusual in raising and we were kind of, you know, because these guys were, quite close there was a bit of chemistry there and uh jd was quite deep with his lyrics and mark was just like ah, a bit party head but they really struck a chord with the punters so people often say oh listen to tapes oh god this is terrible they go to the event and they're like oh mark's his biggest fan now or that's the biggest fan because when you look at the performance and the way they are and they're they're, they're proper in it with the punters or the punters are seeing the, the lyrics long as well it kind of goes mad and 
we started letting you know getting two mics on there so they kind of bounce off each other back to back which to the DJs playing he's like oh my god they're fucking killing my track but the punters just like lapping it all you know I was thinking this is the best thing ever yeah <laughs> on the record shop in Donny Rhythm Nation was a brilliant shop they get you see we get kids coming in and saying can I have tapes from that song and we go like what 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 DJ and go just one woman that song so we kind of created this monster and then of course it, it, it's gone batshit crazy anyway we're like the modern mc we're on like 32 bars and all this kind of bollocks but the problem with them is that a poor imitation they're like a like a fucking poundland m&m version of like what these guys were because they didn't the musical influence they didn't the tonality in the voice or any of that and yeah i know they rip off some ragged lyrics but the it just ain't the same um and even now 20 odd years on chatting some of the same lyrics the people just love it um so yeah it's a bit, a bit like Makina though in the north uh northeast you know there's, there's again there's certain mcs that sound there in that little bubble and people outside are like what's this um but you know if he's got some people into music and you know despite the mc thing you know we were pushing trance like way ahead i mean rubber mouse children we or Enzo got offered the licensing rights to it in 95. We were playing it August 95 when we were at Four House. Um, and he couldn't afford it because the money tied up with Alpha Magic and all this kind of stuff. And of course, these construction got a year later, boom. And there's been a shit from more records like that, including some more trancy, the kind of stuff that Open Pole people were playing. But Kenny had played that kind of stuff. Marcus had chat, turned it down a bit, or JD Walker. And so because the MC was like the, the hook that brought them in, People got really into some proper music as a result of it, so it's, it's not all negative, but okay. to the outside world, yeah, it's like the chip it's, what, party, it, right? it's what works for you, and that and that's what I wanted to to to, to do interviews with promoters from around the country because there are there are these little sort of small things that work for just just that area, and it's and it's fascinating to to try and explore why that is. Um, so sort of come towards the end of this interview we, we we said you know 25 years obviously it was going to be a big year for you uh it's not a big year for anybody unfortunately there's no raves at all uh because of covid um how did you feel about it when it when it when it came in covid uh sort of back in february march time it's a bit surreal because we we just literally signed up and paid to um hire this place in sheffield a new club called uh, signal um and well it's two rooms actually it's quite 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 a funky little place so we were quite looking forward to it got a decent lineup teed up you know clocking people like so we're working towards it and obviously there's the kind of covid thing happening and i can remember being in london and i was meant to be back down the next week and book the train ticket and stuff and and why kind of got wind that there was possibly a lockdown coming um when it wasn't really been hinted at and then sure enough as suggested there was and at first thought is it going to be a couple of months how long is it going to be like everybody and then that may date wasn't going to happen the club thought it was and then we looked at what should we push back and then should we, we'd actually booked um, halloween so in 11 days time 10 days down whatever we'd have been uh is it 10 10 days time we'd have been friday the 30th um we'd have been doing it then and i said as as, as things went on this ain't happening and not only is it not happening this year it's going to be while into next year because I've seen some of these events kind of being put on with you know tables and stuff like that, but we're not that kind of event, you know. We're <laughs> seven, eight hundred people in a room, up close and personal, pulling screw faces, dripping with sweat, 
and and and, and stomping it out, leaving holes in the dance floor. So it, it, that, that's just like a, a, a COVID nightmare, right? Um, and we chatted about this, uh, Brian Kerr and myself, and just took the view that if we can't put the events on in the way that we want to put them on, then we can't put them on. It's just it's not feasible. And have you, um, have, so have, uh, you have you lost money uh, through that and having to postpone? Um, luckily, not too much. I mean, we're getting I'm getting pressed for somebody to to get a DJ across and book flights. Um, Clark, and I was kind of, uh, and this is not a comment on Rich, by the way. It was Andy trying to organise stuff and and, and getting sorted. I said, "Well, are we sure we'll be able to do this?" And I think just at the time we we're about to stump up and pay deposits and book flights and all that kind of stuff, it didn't happen. And the other guys that we kind of spoke to, they were just like, "Yeah, cool." So. Um, luckily, not too much. We've still got uh, money sat with the club, so you know, assuming we can go ahead next year, we'll just just proceed. But a year later, you should have uh, applied to the government fund. You've seen Sunday Essentials got some money despite having not put on an event since 2017. Uh, the <sighs> Boiler Room uh, has has got a load of money as well from the government, despite the fact that they're funded by um, hedge funds and that sort of stuff. And they've never made they've never made a. Uh, I don't think they pay their artists and they've they've never turned a profit in their entire time. So they're getting the money. You should have applied for that. Yeah, I bet it's fucking gifted Mr. Rain a fucking lifeline with his shenanigans. Uh, gay crasher. Um, well, but, um, I mean, there is, that's a, that's a, a questionable organisation and that's putting it politely. That's putting it legally. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I out him for uh, some shenanigans as well that... Um, he tried to insinuate that I was being slanderous, and it's like, here's the visible proof, mate, of what you've done. Argue that. <laughs> you name all over it. It's true. Um, the, the ultimate but, uh, defense to libel is truth, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, you, you crack on, mate. I'll, uh, hang on. What's that? Oh, dust on my phone, not ringing yet. No lawyer. Um, I, 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 my view on that is, I think, you know, there's lots of other people suffering. I mean, I'm, I feel I've got a friend who's uh, got a, uh, a dancing company. Obviously, the artists and people who I know were still doing this full time were struggling, and and you know, fucking you retrain bollocks. I mean, seriously, I think what they should do instead of, as you pointed out, propping up these these clubs that on the face are legitimate businesses and can can blag it. Maybe look at some way of helping people who are typically just sole traders, one man band, whatever artists, and how to help them because they're screwed. I mean, I was chatting with Andy Bowler and, and he's he's had no work, he's had nothing. All like all the guy's done is for 25 years is 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 been the music scene. <clears throat> Where where's his help? You know? Um, so clubs, yeah, it's uh, yeah, I wouldn't even dream of doing anything like that. It just takes the piss and they should fucking hang their heads. What What do you view then as a promoter as the future of raving post-COVID? You're asking a guy who's, who turned 50 years or so ago what I think the future of raving is. Are you serious? You're looking, you're, you're looking good on it, mate. I tell you, are they, oh. them teeth are absolutely sparkling white. They're not, mate. They're uh, in fact, the wife said you need to go and have looks at again. Like, yeah, I'm just going to come out looking like a fridge. But uh, the um, I, I, I really don't know. I mean, for a while, it's like I've tried to keep a hand in the music and think that I'm still got hand in I've got a sense of what I think people might want to hear. Um, but I, I've kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm old Ned. I'm going around the back of the fields now to pasture, and then one day, yeah, sorry, Ned. Um, I, I think. Unless there is a marked change in 
either the, the, the kind of transmission and, and, and the going away, COVID, or um, you know, vaccine, T-cell, whatever the hell they, they come up with. I'm struggling to see how you're going to be able to get lots of people in close quarters like that, in, in Ravens as we knew it, and even in the more modern kind of, maybe the outdoor festivals they can because it's, it's probably a little bit more plausible. Maybe that's the way it'll go, which is how it's seemed to go anyway, is the, the boom towns or the big events over in uh, Europe and the like, um, DEFCONs, et cetera, that may, they may be the ones to survive. But again, if, they, if it crushes and kills the small you know, niche clubs where you know, the next uh, producer or Clarkie or Brisk or whomever might come up who's producing music, it's because they, they, they haven't got that initial stepping stone to, to kind of build and, and grow and grow and how to grow themselves. Yeah, you know, where, where's it going to come from? Where's that innovation going to come from? And ultimately, it's about people making weird sounding, funky, cool music to play to a little dark, dingy room full of people who are into weird, funky music. You might want to get a little bit wobbly. And, 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 and that's how all good things start, right? I mean, I, so, think we should, I think we should start promoting that. That's, 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 that's the future. Me and you, Paul, we're going to promote small, <laughs> small weird, wonky events. I think that's the future. Um, obviously, it's a. This question is is slightly um, this next question is is slightly clouded by COVID and, and so if you can put COVID to one side, I know it's difficult to do so. But what advice would you have for would be promoters? One piece of advice. Wow, wow, wow! I think you have to be into your crowd. You know, the Facebook promo and stuff like that's great, and socials great, but there's no commitment. There's no, um, there's no emotional commitment or anything else. You, know, you can click like on any old dog shit, right? I mean, you can pretend you've had lots of likes when you. I know. Lo- I mean, that. loads of people have clicked on on this podcast, and it's a load of dog shit. So you know, that's a uh, proof in the pudding, mate. <laughs> yeah, well, your ratings are about to go downhill, mate. Um, but the, yeah, I think it has its place, but you have to be still into people's ribs. I mean, there's a guy. For example, there's a guy locally, uh, Joe Rose, uh, and he's doing his Vents Dioxide. Proper into his music, he's proper into his gab. He's a good lad. He's getting out there, he's getting to events, he goes overseas and all the rest of it. He's in the room, he's proper in the thick of it. He's not just doing the social stuff. He's, he's getting himself about as well. And I think you, you've got to do that. I mean, Ollie Bumper, who you obviously know, who's been doing his thing and actually keeping it down, keeping he's got his little niche crowd that he did, same as he did with the music stuff he was doing back in the day with the uh, freeform. You've got to find that little grassroots kind of following crowd and build that and really build that and not just, you know, you, you can't just throw it out there and it will come kind of thing. You know, I'll put it on Facebook because even if you put a, a stonking lineup on, as I've seen a couple of events doing, and then people can go, who are they? And they've got no kind of credibility track record and it will be shit. And then you know, they go and burn a load of money or, you know, people don't get paid and there's a load of backlash and all the rest of it. Whereas the ones that start and slowly build that following, including some of the old school methods, I think that's the way I'd go. Um, and you've got to be into music. You're not the performer yourself, the artist yourself. You've really got to be into that music and have that clear view on direction and have that thumb on the pulse. Okay. Uh, and we asked this question. It's the final question. We ask it to everybody that we interview. If you could choose one person from the 90s rave scene for us to interview, who would you like to hear us interview and why? Oh, I mean, you've had Chris Lunacy. I mean, he's a top, top guy, um, is Chris. Um, promote, I'd say, if you can track down Gary Vibelite. 
Uh, a lot of respect for Gary, a lot of influence to steer me on that. Uh, DJs, uh, if you can get all the, the shark, um, then I think it'd be, it'd be great fun to get on board. Well, I did, um, did, you, did you see recently that he was in the papers? Uh, not been, uh, not been yeah, very well. Uh, so, I mean, that would be fascinating to explore too. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got a lot of time for John. Um, Mick Emzone, I mean, he's, in, what I, in my opinion, one of the unsung heroes of the rave scene. The guy brought the best Dutch DJs to Donny Warehouse. I mean, we were blessed when he was kind of like in the background helping promote that. Uh, the trance influence that he brought along as well, some of the people he wrote was tried to do with UK 44 Records. I mean, the guy's a fucking legend. So I'd say, get Mick on board. Really nice guy. Uh, Sharky. Um... Yeah, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think it would be it would be good, fun, it would just be just completely off the rails. But uh, I think probably John the Shark is, is probably about one of those ones there. I think that's probably right. Well, if I can say, Paul, you've been one of those people who's been uh, a slightly slightly off the rails, but in a, in the most fantastic uh, way. I've really really enjoyed this last hour. It's been one of the, my favourite <laughs> interviews so far. The first promoter we've ever done, um, and also. <laughs> just so frank and honest and fun and interesting. So um, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, mate. Uh, and I wish you uh, as well the very best with the 25th slash 26th anniversary or maybe 27th, whenever, whenever it happens. I wish you the best with it. Uh, well, hopefully it's hips and still work and stuff, then I'll be uh, getting pensionable by the time I can party. Well, uh, hopefully as well, there'll be an, an invite extended to uh, to me as well, because I've never been to an uprising and I'd absolutely love to. I've heard so, so many good things. Mate, you're on the list. You're on the list. Good man, good man. Let me ask you the MCs are then, or you can tell them and then we'll... Uh... I, I, I might not. <laughs> I might keep it to myself this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you'll come to love them as everybody else and you'll be, be like a kid in it. <laughs> Top man. Paul, thank you, mate. All right, mate. Cheers. Uh, that's uh, Paul O, the uh, infamous, famous, legendary promoter of Sheffield-based uh, Rave Uprising. Now been going for 25 years. Their anniversary will be along soon. Don't you worry. Well, that's it from this week's edition of Raw. We hope you've enjoyed tuning in. If you want to give us a hand to create more and better 90s rave-related content while getting shouts on future episodes and getting your hands on some artwork designed exclusively for us by Grantus Arts, you can do so by heading to gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. Just a few quid will help anything at all, frankly, uh, but it would go a long way to helping us keep this thing going. That address again, gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. And we'll see you all next week.